1: we're to take our place in the body. We're to fill our part. We're to do our part. We're realizing that the body is coordinated by who? The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that's coordinating the body of Christ, not us. And as we walk in this love, we demonstrate to Christ, to the world, the love that we have for one another, the love that we need for one another. It's demonstrated to the world and our united efforts become Jesus Christ. Each of us taking our place, doing our part. What a powerful witness What a powerful witness to the world when they see how harmoniously we live together, how harmoniously we function as God's children.
0: The Holy Spirit coordinates the body of Christ. In today's message from Pastor Dave, he teaches that the Holy Spirit has given each disciple gifts to build up and unify the body. When each member uses the gifts they have received from the Spirit and work together as united children of God, the world sees Christ. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 5 as he begins his message, Point of Faith.
1: Join me in the book of Acts. If you'll turn there, please, look for Acts 5. comes after 4, before 6. I'll read aloud, if you would please read silently. Acts 5, verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them. But the people esteemed them highly. And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches. And at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. As we continue our study in the book of Acts this morning, we remember... From our previous times together, that the early church had persevered when Satan attacked it. Satan chose to attack it from the outside, and he was used in persecution. He was used the persecution of the religious leaders. Also, last week we saw a different tactic taken by Satan as he began to attack the church from the inside through hypocrisy. He started to attack the church from within. He was taking a different tactic. But this tactic failed because Ananias and Sapphira were struck down dead. They were struck down dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. And the Spirit then began to purge the church of hypocrisy. We learned last week that hypocrisy within the church can destroy it. It's like a cancer that can spread through the church and cause great damage and great discord and great harm. It causes division. Hypocrisy grieves the heart of God. Hypocrisy can kill your witness as others see the masks that you wear and others find out the acts that you're putting on. Hypocrisy kills your joy as you analyze and criticize others in order to make your deceit look good. And hypocrisy kills your peace as you live in fear that somebody's going to find you out. Hypocrisy is a bad thing. And God dealt very severely with the sin, severely that the, these two people were killed, killed by the Holy Spirit. In Acts 5, verse 11, we read, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. God got the results he wanted. Because as the story of what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira spread through the church community, spread through the entire community, church and non-church alike, this great fear swept over the body, swept over the nation. They were afraid. They began to honestly assess themselves. They began to honestly look in and to see if they were where God wanted them to be. And if they were spiritual lives matched up with what they were saying and what they were doing. God got the results he wanted by purging the church. The fear of the Lord draws you into a deep relationship with Him. The fear of the Lord, we're told, is the beginning of wisdom. But listen to what David, the psalmist, says in Psalm 34, verse 11-14. Come, you little children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, who is the man who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Job said in Job twenty-eight, twenty-eight. Behold, the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. So what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is departing from evil. The fear of the Lord is a reverent, awesome fear of this mighty, holy God to stand before him unholy, unrighteous. And the fear of the Lord is that I've got to get my act together because I serve a most holy God, and his demands on me are nothing less than perfection, nothing less than holiness. Wow, I can't live up to that. I can't do that. I proved that already. I cannot do that in my own flesh. Ah, enter Jesus Christ the righteous. And when I look at him and I jump onto him and I grab a hold of him and I say yes to him and I say, yes, I want you as my savior. You died on the cross because of me. You went and visited the graves and brought the captives free. You spent three days in a tomb and were raised from the dead so that I might have eternal life. When I look at that and I see that, wow, I'm freed. I'm clean. And this fear that I have is a fear of letting him down. It's a fear of misrepresenting him. That's my biggest fear. I don't want to misrepresent my Lord after everything he's done for me. When the fear of the Lord is upon you, there's an understanding of evil, and you want to rid yourself of it. When the fear of the Lord is upon you, you want to devoid yourself of all sin. Get rid of it. Cleanse yourself. Purge yourself from within. According to Proverbs 8, verse 13, we're to hate evil. We're to hate pride. We're to hate arrogance. God has called us to be a holy nation. He's called us to be a royal priesthood. He's called us to be set apart for him. And the fear of the Lord will draw people into that deeper relationship so that this can happen, not in and of yourself, but all through Jesus Christ. Because when I stand before a holy God and he looks at me, Jesus Christ is standing in front of me and he sees me in Christ. We're one. And he says, you're holy. It's a skeething thought because I know I'm not holy. I know I'm not what God wants. But he says, you have Jesus, and that's what I want. My want for you is to believe in Jesus. My want for you is to be saved, to be born again, we call it. Even Jesus himself said it two times in John 3, you must be born again. Be born of the Spirit, come into a new life. The new church knew this and had this great fear. This fear was upon them. They knew that they served the holy God. They served the righteous God. And as a result of this, they wanted to be spotless. They wanted to be void of evil. They confessed their sin. They purged themselves of sin. And then they prayed and they hoped that a mighty God, through his mercy and his grace, would help them to remove all the hypocrisy in their lives. Because you can't do this on your own. You need help from a most holy God, one who is willing to be with you day after day after day, to walk beside you, to guide you, to lead you. When people say God is not active in the world today, I don't know what God they're talking about. My God is active in the world today. My God is active in my life. My God cares about my life. He cares about all our lives, and He walks with us today and shows us and guides us if we would just be still and listen to His words. From this great fear came a purging, came God's desire that we would purge ourselves from sin, get rid of it. God can show us the sin. God can declare us sinners, but we need to get rid of the sin. We need to come to the cross of Jesus Christ and we need to repent and we need to ask for forgiveness and we need to be converted and regenerated by his blood. God says, do this. Great fear came, this purging. And from this purging, there were three things that happened. I want to talk about them today. There was great power. There was great unity and great grace continued to flow throughout the new church. First, let's talk about this great power we see. We see great power through the hands of the apostles. It is interesting that as a result of the cleansing of the church, the cleansing happened first. The church was purged first, and then this prayer was answered. Back in chapter 4, verse 30, the disciples and the apostles prayed a prayer. They said, stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Acts 4, verse 30. We read now as we begin today's study in Acts 5, verse 12, the Lord now answers their prayers because the first thing we read is, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. God answers their prayers. Why? Because they purged themselves from hypocrisy. They purged themselves from sin. They went to a holy God, they confessed their sin, and they were raised up, and God delivered them, and God answered their prayers, and God used them mightily to demonstrate his love. So the Lord cleansed the church first, and then through their hands... He performed signs and wonders. Notice it says, through the hands of the apostles. It doesn't say that by the hands of the apostles. There's a big difference. By the hands of the apostles, you would think, oh, the apostles are pretty mighty. No, 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 through the hands. Here you have the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. The Holy Spirit was doing the work. It was evident the apostles couldn't take credit for it. The Holy Spirit had anointed them for this work. The Holy Spirit was making these things happen in their lives. They couldn't take no credit for it. How do you think? Why do you think they were empowered this way? Why do you think God allowed this to happen and was manifesting these signs and wonders? I think that God wanted to reach the heart of the people. He wanted to reach the heart of the Jews. He wanted to reach the heart of the people who were seeking him, and they were always seeking signs and wonders. He chose to do signs and wonders to touch the people and give the apostles the right to be heard. I think that God wanted to reach the hearts of these peoples. So he chooses signs and wonders. It's not the signs and wonders that cause people to repent. It was the message that came with the signs and wonders. It was the word of God. It was the word of God that caused them to repent. And it still is the word of God today. Nothing has changed. These signs and wonders just authenticated the gospel message. The message was Jesus is alive. He is resurrected. He's alive now. And he's the one who is doing these signs and wonders. And through him is forgiveness of sin. Through him is eternal life. Again, the message hasn't changed. It's still the same today. Well, signs and wonders were a part of the early church. And you know what? I think they should be a part of our church. But we shouldn't strive to make them happen. We shouldn't strive to make signs and wonders happen. Nor we should prevent them from happening. In fact... We should pray that when they happen and hope that they would happen. But my faith is built upon the word of God, not signs and wonders. If the signs and wonders don't happen, my faith is not going to fade. But if the sign and wonders happen, guess what? My faith is strengthened and I am encouraged. We have seen signs and wonders here. We've had people get healed here of illnesses and of sicknesses. We've seen that with our own eyes. And our faith is encouraged. Our faith is excited. We're excited because God has touched someone in a special way, and there was healing, and he gets the glory. He gets the the praise. That's what we're here to do is praise him and glorify him. So this great power was manifested through the hands of the apostle. And second, there was great unity among the brethren. There was great unity among the believers. Look at the second part of verse 12. And they were with all one accord in Solomon's porch. The unity that I'm talking about here has been a characteristic of the new church since the day of Pentecost. They've had this unity, this oneness. Because of the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, we see this great power, and now we see this great unity among the believers. This unity comes from the fear of God, and it's present in our lives as we submit one to another in love. There is unity. When I think and esteem you more highly than myself, when I look out for your interest above mine, when I become others-centered, the love of Jesus Christ is spread. And it's spread throughout the entire church, and there's a unity there. There's a unity. We become one. I place your knees before me. I become others-centered. Paul says, talks about this oneness in Romans 12, verse 5. He said, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Here we go, back to the truth project, the unio mystica, the mystery of us in Christ and Christ in us and us in each other. It's a mystery. We don't understand it but we praise God for it because it's biblical and God says this is who we are. Jesus prayed that I and the Father are one, just like you and me are one, and they are one. We're all one together, this mystery. So here we are. We're put in the body of Christ, and each of us has our own function. Each of us has something to do. He's talking about like us at Calvary Chapel here being part of a general body of Christ, a general body, a whole body. The other churches, you know, the other denominations, anyone who's declared Jesus Christ as their Savior and has accepted his sacrifice on the cross as forgiveness of sin is our brother and sister. We are conjoined with them in a oneness. We have a oneness with them. And we shouldn't think that it's a competition. We shouldn't be biting and devouring and destroying one another. We need to identify who the enemy is, and we need to be banding together to destroying and devouring him. We need to be putting him down and not ourselves down. We're all members of one another, and we're members of God, and he has a purpose for those other churches. We find ourselves in conflict and trying to find out what's wrong with them. That's the Lord's job to determine. I can't determine what's wrong with them. i got to determine what's wrong with me. i got to look within me to find out what's wrong. I can't go around looking, oh, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong. Well, I have to look within me. In 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-one, 31, it says, For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And sometimes we find ourselves, you know, we're in the mood, we're so busy trying to examine the flaws of everybody else that we can completely ignore our own. David, in Psalm 139, said, Search me, O God. David, and David, oh God, search the guy next to me and show me what's wrong with him. Oh, David said, Search me. Show me my wickedness. Show me the way. Show me the path. i got to take care of my judgment in here. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It's a personal thing, and it's something should be all quite interesting so that God can do the work he wants to do within our hearts. We're all members. We're all one together, and we're all here today, and it's true, corporately, the body of Christ. And we all have to recognize and realize that God has placed us here with various positions. Some he's given pastors, teachers. Some he's called to be deacons. Some he's called to be elders. Some he's called to be intercessors. Some he's called to street evangelism, And yes, some he's called to children's ministry. Some he has called the children's ministry. And we're to take our place in the body. We're to fill our part. We're to do our part. We're realizing that the body is coordinated by who? The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that's coordinating the body of Christ, not us. And as we walk in this love, we demonstrate to Christ, to the world, the love that we have for one another, the love that we need for one another. It's demonstrated to the world. And our united efforts become Jesus Christ, each of us taking our place, doing our part. What a powerful witness to the world. What a powerful witness to the world when they see how harmoniously we live together, how harmoniously we function as God's children. When they see Christ among us and where Christ magnified in us, who do they want? They want Christ. So we being many are still one body of Christ. We're all one part, each doing our own thing. Unio mystica it's called. This is what is happening in the early church. The oneness that Luke mentions here, the body of Christ working together with a common goal. And that common goal is that Christ would be magnified. The common goal of the church, Christ would be magnified. No man's magnified, but Jesus Christ is magnified. He's magnified to a dying world, and if magnified and lifted up, he will draw men and women to himself. It's his job to draw them in. The new church doesn't present a bickering church, a quarreling church. The only thing they can attract are flies. We don't want that kind of a church. No one wants to be part of that kind of a church. But a church that genuinely loves each other in trueness and in spirit, everybody wants to be a part of that kind of a church. Now, because of the death of Ananias and Sapphira, not many people wanted to join this church, although they thought highly of them, that he esteemed them. It says they didn't want to be a part of this small group. Look at verse thirteen. Yet none of the rest there joined them, but the people esteemed them highly. So, in spite of the miracles, the same people who were being healed were too afraid to join the fellowship of the saints, and they didn't want to be numbered with the believers. They were afraid. Why do you think they were afraid? I think they were afraid because they didn't want to commit themselves to Jesus Christ. They didn't want to truly commit themselves to Jesus Christ and follow Jesus Christ at all costs. It takes a lot to follow Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said, count the cost. You want to be my disciple? Count the cost. It's not just a free ride. You've got to count the cost. There is a cost to being a disciple. But these people wanted a free ride. It's very similar to the people who hung around Jesus just for a good meal. There are many, many people who just hung around Jesus because he knew sooner or later he's going to get hungry. And when he eats, we all eat. So a lot of people just hung around him for that. And they wanted to be part of the free meal wagon. Many people like church people. Many people like to hang around church people because they know how we feel about the Bible. And they know that if I hang around you long enough, well, you're going to give me a donation or you're going to feed me or something good's going to happen. But they don't want to make a commitment to Jesus Christ. They don't want to make that commitment. They don't want to come overboard. They don't want to, I don't want to be a Jesus freak. Oh my gosh. I don't want to be labeled with you. People like church people, but they don't dare join them. They don't dare join them. This Ananias and Sapphira incident would definitely cut down on the commitment thing. Would definitely cut down on the commitment thing. Would definitely take some problems there. In verse 14, we see that there still was an increase in believers coming into the church. They were coming into the Lord. Listen to this. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. What I see here is that although people were afraid to join the new church, meeting on Solomon's porch, these new believers were continually being added. And look what it says. It doesn't say being added to the church. It doesn't say being added to a person. It doesn't say being added to a movement. It says being added to the Lord. They were being added to God himself. They were being added to him. He was drawing them in, and they were identifying with him. They didn't want to be identified with this tight group for fear that they might be cast off, for fear that they might do something wrong and be struck dead. But they were being added to the body. As a result of this great manifestation of love that was exhibited by these new believers, multitudes came to the faith in Jesus Christ. What an exciting time this had to be. Can you imagine what this looked like? Can you imagine? This is several thousand people. This is not just one or two. You know, if we had an altar call today, it would be wonderful if one or two people came down and accepted the Lord, and we would be cheering, and we'd be praising heaven, and we'd be right to do so. But can you imagine thousands at a time? Think back of when you first accepted the Lord. Think about the excitement that you had. Think about the eagerness that you wanted to serve God. Think about the eagerness that you wanted to read his word. Think about how you wanted to spend and know everything you could about them, and you knew the Word of God was true, and you wanted to get in there and dig it around. Think of that excitement that you had. Think of how much fun you have. Now multiply that by about five to 6,000, and that's what the apostles were dealing with. They had all these people who were so excited. No wonder the Lord was adding to their ministry. And one thing about the new Christian, can they never tell people enough about Jesus Christ? The new Christian is always out there. Look what Christ did for me. You got to know. You got to believe. That's what the new Christian's doing. No wonder the Lord was adding to the church, but he was adding to himself, the oneness, the oneness. So we see this great power being manifested through the hands of the apostles by signs and wonders. We see this great unity being among the brethren manifested by love. And we finally, we see God's great grace and mercy continually being poured out onto all people, including the surrounding cities through these healings and these casting out of demonic and tormented people, these demons. Look in verse 15 and 16, we read where people would bring out their sick into the streets so that the shadow of Peter would fall on them. Verses 15 and 16, so that they brought the sick out of the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities of Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were healed. These people brought out their sick friends and placed them into the path of Peter's shadow in hopes that they would be healed. Peter's shadow became a point of faith for them. Peter's shadow became a point of contact of their faith. And when I read this, I was immediately reminded of that beautiful, beautiful woman of the issue of blood for 12 years in Luke 8. If she, you remember the story. This woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. No one could touch her because she was unclean. Can you imagine being married and her husband couldn't touch her for 12 years because she was unclean? She had to live by herself, eat by herself. She couldn't do anything for 12 years because of this issue of blood she has. Because every time somebody saw her, they would yell, unclean, unclean, they would run away. She was destitute. She was degraded. She was humiliated. She didn't know what to do. And then she heard Jesus was coming to town. And she thought, you know, if I could just, if I could just touch the hem of his robe, if I could just reach out and touch the hem of his robe, I might be healed. That's what she believed. She believed in Jesus Christ. The hem of his robe became a contact point for her, of her faith. It became a contact point, just like Peter's shadow became a contact point for these people who needed to be healed. Jesus is walking through the crowd, and it's mobbed, and everybody's reaching for him. Jesus, yay, they're calling his name, and he's walking through the crowd. And all of a sudden, he stops, it says in Luke eight forty five, Jesus stops, and he said, who touched me? And the disciples I would love to see their faces. They turn around like, uh, Jesus, we're in a crowd of about 9,000 people. Everybody's reaching for you. Uh, who didn't touch you? You know? I could just see their faces. Peter probably said that, you know, impetuous Peter. Come on, Lord. But the Lord said, no. Somebody touched me. He said, for I perceive power going out of me. You are sure.
0: When Jesus left earth following His resurrection, His followers weren't sure what was next. They had instructions from their Lord and Savior, but not much else. However, they chose to trust that what Jesus said was true and was going to change their lives. It did. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to minister to the world in ways they'd never have been able to do on their own. Is Jesus asking you to follow His instructions today? Maybe He's only given you a piece of the journey, or maybe He's asking you to wait. Take a cue today from the members of the early church. Trust Jesus to come through with His promises and change your life. We're so glad you tuned in to Assure Hope. We'd like to hear from you and learn how we can be praying for you. So please give us a call. Our number is 609-884-5821. If you'd like to hear more messages from this series in the book of Acts, you'll find them at assurehoperadio.com. There are several teachings on various books of the Bible available online for download. And we encourage you to share them with your friends and family. You can also receive a CD copy of today's message by calling us. Again, our number is 609-884-5821. That's all we have time for today. We're so glad we can share God's Word with you through this ministry. Pastor Dave will have more to share from this verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of the Book of Acts. So we hope you'll join us again right here on A Sure Hope.